no matter how difficult things are, there is always something good out of, in every situation. So I try just to, to look at the bright side. I don't become delusional. And when things are hard, I know that I, and I address them. But I like to keep an upbeat personality and to make things easy for the people around me. I don't, I don't moan to, for too long. When things go wrong, I just try to learn and move on. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Thank you for having me. You're a friend of mine, so I always look forward to having shows with folks that I know. So I can't wait. I'm f***ing pumped. Let's do it. I'm excited. Let's go. I read all of my guests' backgrounds back to them. I'll read it back to you. Tell me where I screw up. Go from there. You got your bachelor's degree in economics from La Universidad de Madrid. Close enough. Okay. Carlos III. Yeah. Okay. All right. Carlos III. And then uh, you got your master's in business. Got your business degree in the Netherlands Mm -hmm. at Rotterdam. Yep. Rotterdam School of Management. Okay. Then... Did you go to another school after that? I went to another school after that. Uh, when I started working at PwC, they sent me to do my MBA at a school in Madrid. So yeah, I went to another school after that. Then you became the VIP area manager for Real Madrid. I wish I knew you then. Then you went to PwC. Yep. Spent three years there in management consulting, trying to figure out your life, figure out what you want to do. Then you went to Capgemini, still searching for what you want to do. Yep as most consultants do. Then you went and started your company called Yatpa. Yep. Didn't go very well. It went terribly. Terribly. It went terribly. Terribly. (laughs) Okay, it went terribly. Then, as luck would have it, you end up at Dropbox. You joined Dropbox around employee like 100? Yeah, 150, something like that, yeah. And uh, first you were in sales and operations, whatever that means, I think probably just like NAE. Correct. Did that for a year. Then you rose through the ranks to ultimately become the head of sales for Southern Europe and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Where were you? I was in Ireland. In based Ireland. in Ireland, but I've never flew more in my life. Yeah, okay. I was traveling every week yeah. on the road. Yeah. You spent four years in Ireland. Then you became the director of sales and business development for EMEA. Was that in London? It was in Ireland as well. Still in Ireland. Yep. I okay. almost became Irish. Yeah, exactly. No one would mistake you for Irish with your accent. So- my accent is fully Irish. <laughs> So then you became the director and head of sales for the Americas and the GM for New York City. I think you opened the Dropbox New York City office or was responsible for managing it. Mm -hmm. Did two years of that. So that's seven years. Seven years at Dropbox. Seven years. I saw a stat that you were at Dropbox by the time you left for longer than 97% of the folks. That sounds about right. Is that right? That sounds about right. I had to dig up in the archives for that one. <laughs> then you joined a company called Hopin that was in September of 2020, which is a year and a half ago. Yep. Okay. You didn't screw up. You did pretty, I did, I did you, okay. did, you did very well. I did okay. You did very well. I did okay. Uh, maybe sometimes I don't give myself as much credit as I deserve on the backgrounds. You did fantastic. Thank you. What is up with the three-part name? 
Javier Ortega Estrada. Is that like a Spanish thing? It is a Spanish thing. I have more names. My name is actually <laughs> longer than that. But <laughs> in Spain, when people get married, women don't change their surname. The kids take the first surname from the dad and the second surname from the mother. So Ortega is from my father's side and Estrada is from my mother's side. And so you just combine them? Yeah. And it's not hyphenated or it is hyphenated. Do you put a little dash in the middle there? No, that's only if you want to pass the two names to your kids. Right. Uh, no, no, you don't do that. So when you have a kid, what's the last name? Ortega, and then whatever comes next. Okay, so they will have Ortega. Is that going to be the middle name or the last name? That's the first surname. That's the first surname. I'll show you my ID. It's even more confusing, and Americans get it wrong all the time. I think I have several personalities here. Some people, because I have two names, my and this is like something I don't share often. My full name is Pedro Javier. Yeah. What makes it very Spanish. Some people put me Pedro Estrada, Pedro Ortega, Javier Estrada, Javier Ortega. <laughs> uh, it's very confusing to people. And actually at Hopin, I think I have seven different email addresses because they couldn't figure it out. So they created all these emails like Javier.Strada, Javier.Ortega, Pedro Estrada. It's a mess for IT. You have five names. Basically. This is just me. This is just one persona. I feel jealous. I don't even have a middle name. You have five names. Come on, you go by Jack when I you go make Jack. you go by right. Jack when you make reservations right. at that's restaurants. Right. So you that's might right. have another name. That's right. You're right. My fake middle name is definitely Jack, and my future kid's name is certainly Jack. Okay, what happened as the VIP manager at Real Madrid? Tell me, it's what I'm thinking. It is. What is it? It is probably what you think it is. My my job was that was my first contact with sales. It was more of an account management role. When you work for Real Madrid selling like boxes, you have customers there forever. So you don't have to focus on new business, but you need to make sure that they are fine. So I was working during every sport event or corporate event at the stadium, just making sure that everything was going smoothly. And it was it was a fantastic job. It was an account manager role. Was Ronaldo playing? Ronaldo was playing at, by the end when I left. Yeah. I heard that you left Spain when you were 17. Is that right? No, no. I left Spain after I did my bachelor's in Carlos III. And then I came back and then I left again. But yeah. I've also heard, tell me if this is right or wrong, speaking of all of the Spanish things that I think about you, besides the bowls on the wall, did you win a paella cooking contest in Austin? <laughs> I don't know where you go with all these things, but yeah. Oh, we didn't we didn't quite win. I have we didn't so quite many win. Stereotypes. <laughs> I can check all your boxes. I can check all your boxes. We didn't quite win. And I was very sad about it. But a paella is a thing I love to do. And every weekend I have people over and I cook for 20 people. We have some wine, some, some paella and get ready for the start of the week. That's a serious dish to cook. That takes time. It takes time, but it's not that hard. It's about getting the measures right, being patient, like most things in life. If you do it a thousand times, you will learn to do it. And it's a tradition in my family. Every Sunday we used to get together to, to eat and my mom cooks the best paella I ever tested. I don't dare to say the best in the world because I will, I'm going to get pointed fingers and it's like, okay, you're biased. But she has some serious skills. And when I left home, I wanted to carry on with that tradition. And the closest thing I have to family here is my friends. So every weekend I have people over and you're more than invited now that you're in Austin. I love it. What was conversation like for Pedro Javi Ortega Estrada at the dinner table growing up in Spain? A lot of it was about school. Did uh, anyone speak English? No, no. We speak Spanish in Spain. Right. Uh, at home. <laughs> right. At table, home, yeah. For sure. But parents don't now, speak English. No, my parents don't speak English. My mom speaks a little bit. My dad speaks French. Back in the day, people were more learning French at school. What'd you talk about? Well, you know, things you would talk as a kid, how you're doing in school. 
girls. We didn't talk that much about the job of my dad, but we also will talk about it sometimes. I'm an army brat, so I grew up in a military base. My dad is a general for the army and like focused on anti-terrorism, so his work was always different than than the other kids at school. So we didn't talk that much about work, but sometimes we will. We will talk about sports, like general things, the things you talk as a kid. Never business. That's interesting. I have heard you say on other podcasts and in your Twitter bio, it says that you're an optimist by nature. And I actually, I agree with that self-reflection and uh, description of, of how you think of it. I actually think it's a really good quality to have. Tell me more. What does that mean? And how does that get there? No matter how difficult things are, there's always something good out of, uh, in every situation. So I try just to, to look at the bright side. I don't become delusional. And when things are hard, I know that I, and I address them, but I like to keep an upbeat personality and to make things easy for the people around me. I don't moan to, for too long. When things go wrong, I just try to learn and move on. But yeah, most of the times I'm smiling. Always been like that? Always been like that. And do you think of optimism as being able to rebound from things that go bad more quickly? Or do you think of optimism as seeing the silver lining in the things that are going bad? Probably both. I always get excited about the next thing. If something goes wrong, I'm like, okay, what's next? How do we move on from a situation? How can we build from where we are? But I also try to get the learnings. When I talk about this company of mine that I started with my friends, it went terribly wrong. We did all the wrong things. We spent all the money that we got from tiny venture capital in the wrong things. We got lawyers. The first thing we got was lawyers. I don't know why. <laughs> and that's, that's the easiest way to get your funding gone. And, and then we got a super cool office. But we were working part-time on that thing. It's like, why did we spend all the money on this space? None of us knew how to code. It was a disaster. But I learned a ton. And when I talked to some of my partners, they described those days as very dark days for them because we were working overnight and it was very hard. For, but for me, it was amazing. I learned a ton and, and I, I, I kept the good memories and, and the experience. I've also heard that you are kind of like an obsessive personality. So I'll give you an example of that. The way you work out. First, it would be rumble classes. Then it would be dog pound classes. Then it'll be going to get every single watch for your Ironman that you're going to do. You're looking at me, rolling your eyes. <laughs> Has it always been that way? I don't know. I don't know if you know Enneagram. Do you know Enneagram? Are you familiar with it? No. Um, well, it's one of these personality assessments. I'm a type seven. And that means that I have a lot of hobbies and a lot of passions. Yeah. And they often fade quickly, Zubin. <laughs> like yeah. when I want to do an Ironman, it's like this, my obsession for six months, I do it. And then it's like, okay, I'm done with this. And I move on to the next hobby. Yeah, I'm a mediocre in most things like golf, uh, cycling, triathlons, swimming, but tennis. But I, I do a lot of different things. I've heard the opposite. I've heard you're pretty damn good at a lot of things. And it frustrates most people because you just do some random thing. You pick it up. And then all of a sudden, six months later, you're like, meh, that's okay. I'm next over one. it. Yeah. 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 I think the other point that you made about your optimism, which is that you always know that there's going to be something else that captures your curiosity after you do it. So it's really easy to be optimistic when there's one challenge, something that goes wrong, there's a sport, there's a painting, there's a piece of food or whatever that, that you're all of a sudden interested in. Let's say someone takes that away from you, you know that there's going to be something else that you get really fired up in in six months and it's probably easier to be optimistic that way. Yep. You know, I, I will agree with that. I try to find a new thing for sure. The other thing that you've said, and I think this is an interesting transition to Dropbox, is that you enjoy working with companies that haven't figured it out yet. You and I were at dinner before you went to Hopin, and you were figuring out what's next. 
And you know my partner, Ilya. You guys work together at Dropbox. You're asking me, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, what fires you up? What gets you really excited? And you said, early. Series A, early. That is not a typical answer. Most people, especially once they've had the ride that you've had from 100, 150 employees and beyond, they usually want something that is more baked, less risky, you can put fuel on the fire, and you're off into the races. You don't feel that way. For me, if I don't have fun at work, if I don't enjoy going to work every day, I'm not going to love it. And I'm going to be looking for the next thing. The same thing that we talk about when it comes to down to hobbies. So what I discover joining Dropbox early is that the stage that I like the most was that one where we were trying to figure out our go-to-market motion, trying to figure out what countries were a priority and what countries were not a priority, trying to figure out pricing, processes. That's when I enjoy the most. Uh, it doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy when we were a publicly traded company and we had a different level of rigor. I also enjoyed that part, but it was more about keeping the lights on, optimizing, going for steady growth. I like the fast and furious kind of startup mentality more. Who hired you? Philippe? OJ? It was actually Johan Button and OJ. Okay. Both of them. Johan was a person and, and Ben Coggins, now Trip Actions, a uh, great friend as well. I keep very close uh, relationship with all of them. I texted OJ before this and I said, come on, what do you got about Javi? And he said, look, we didn't overlap for that long in the kind of the regions that we were in, but I remember interviewing him. Yep. And I remember in my interview with him, he was just dripping with enthusiasm and potential. Well, that didn't surprise me, safe to say. How'd you find Dropbox? This is going to be a very weird thing. I found it through a Facebook ad and I talk about Those it. Those work? Apparently. <laughs> I will never forget. I was... Working on an assignment in Colombia, in Cali, I was flying back to Spain often. And once I came back to Spain one time, they told me that my assignment was extended for another 18 months in Colombia. I was like, okay, this is not going to work. I know that consulting is not what I want to do forever. I got very excited before about the company that I started that was in the tech space, or we tried to be in the tech space. I, I knew I wanted to work in technology, in a startup. So I started looking in the normal channels, LinkedIn, and I didn't find anything that, that caught my attention. And then one day, I logged into my Facebook account and I got an ad saying that Dropbox was opening up offices in Europe and that they were hiring. And I blindly sent my CV as an optimist that I am. I was like, yeah, maybe they call me, maybe they don't, but I'm going to try. So I sent my CV, they call me. I had a pretty long interview process. I flew to Ireland, I flew to San Francisco, and I met a team and it was great. I got the job randomly. Did you want to be in sales or did you want to work in like a hot tech company? I didn't know exactly where I was going to fit. And the role I applied for was a very general role. It was sales and operations. When you're a consultant, you're selling all the time. But you're selling your work and you're selling like an extension of the project or something else. Like you, you figure out a new project that you can do or try to sell to a different company. So in a way, I've always been in sales. But my first sales job, like proper sales job with a quota, was a Dropbox and I knew that that was where I wanted to spend my time. Did you have any idea what you were getting into? No idea. I had no clue. I will never forget I getting to Ireland for the first time and not understanding the taxi driver. I was like, I'm such a fraud, man. I don't even speak English. Then I realized that, you know, accents in <laughs> Ireland are a thing uh, that I actually do speak English. But yeah, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And until the interview, had you ever been to Ireland? No. No, never. And so, I moved there for six years. You moved there for six that. years. Yep. 
What were you thinking like when you pack your bags from Spain, lived there your entire life, your family's there, you're leaving consulting, you had just failed in your startup, and you're moving to Ireland. It's going through your head. Are you still optimistic? I was thinking, well, Spain is just a two hour and a half plane ride. I can come back every weekend if I want to. And I was thinking the weather is going to suck so much. Those are the two things that that were in my head, Uh, but I was very excited. The team was great. I think Dropbox in 2013 and like always had to focus a lot on talent. And, but but there were some phenomenal people and I knew that I was going to learn a ton and that I was going to make connections that will probably like change my professional life forever. And that actually became true. What was harder? Figuring out how to be in this new company, figuring out how to be in tech sales or figuring out how to uproot your life and live in Ireland. I think the life component was the hardest, being far from everyone. Picking up sales, it's about process, it's about having routines, having discipline, having rhythm. And I was already good at it. And I think consulting, if anything, is a great school. And it teaches you how to work hard. And I worked very hard and I did well. But the hard part was being far from the people you love. And it's still something that sometimes I think about. It's like, I'm so far. Now I'm in Austin, out of all places. And my family is very far away and, and I miss them. I miss them often. One of the hiring traits, weirdly enough, that I look for is someone that didn't necessarily come from the best ride ever. As an example, OJ, someone we both know, just absolutely crushed it at Asana. The expectations that he would have for the next job are Asana type expectations. And before that, he did Dropbox. And so, when you walk into the next opportunity, there's a lot of room for disappointment if you're using your reference points from what was previous. For you, what I think of is if someone came from a really tough go at it, like me, my first job was a disaster. My first job was we raised $135 million at this startup, never found product market fit, And I just thought, this is how they all are. Like, this is what startups are like. That was my opinion. And when I went to my next company, the chip on my shoulder was so, because I never wanted to feel that again. And I know what bad looks like, that even if I have a taste of mediocre, let alone good, I would run at that thing as fast as I possibly could. Did you feel that way? Or is that just how I felt? I always considered that I had pretty good rights. I when I was in consulting, I had the lack of having a lot of international projects. I was doing what I wanted. For me, taking the leap from Dropbox to something else was hard because of comfort. But when I look at an opportunity, it's product market fit and it's a team. Those are the two things that you need to look at. And if, if you see a company that has product market fit and you talk to customers and you understand what they're trying to do, and then the team, it's someone that you say, okay, I could work for any of these people, even if eventually they might report to you you can see them having the potential to be your boss one day. It's like, that's where I want to be. And that's what I look at. Then, yeah, things can get hard. You shouldn't expect smooth sailing all the time. Philippe, your old boss, correct? He's your old boss? Yeah. Ish. Uh, yeah. Your old peer. Your no, old no, co- no, 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 no. I, I reported, I was in, Philippe, in Philippe's organization. I never reported directly to him. I had someone in between. One of the fan favorites of the show. The show was, was, was great. He's, he's a great man. He is a truly a great man. He and I walked out of the studio the day that we recorded and looked at each other and we're like, what the f*** just happened? Like, what just happened in there? 
he told me to ask you about a story. He said, ask Javi how he got a large education customer in New York City to get the signature before Christmas. That's a good one. I was supposed to fly to Spain for the Christmas holiday for the break, the 22nd of December. Our fiscal year finished at the end of the year. And there was a lot of things riding on, on this deal. It was a huge deal for the company. And we didn't have a signature. It was a public institution in New York City in education. So I decided to cancel my trip to Spain and stay in Christmas in New York City. And I knew that they were not working that weekend, but I knew on the 27th they were going to go to the office. So I just went to the office and I sat in the office with the contract in paper. Printed it. Printed. <laughs> waiting for them to show up. And when they show up, we got the signature. We got the signature and we went to celebrate. Uh, but that's what happened. I stayed there. I think I waited for four hours. You just sat there? Yeah, I was just waiting. And you like knew what they looked like from the Zooms or from No, I've met them in person multiple times. You've met them, yeah. Did they know you were sitting there? They did not know I was sitting there. But they told me we will get a signature before the end of the year. And it was not happening. Communications were spotty. And I, I decided, yes, to go camp in their office. Why that deal mean so much to you and to the company? It meant a lot to me because it meant a lot to my team. It was a difference between them being successful for the year or not. And for the company, it was important because it was the largest deal to date for Dropbox. And it was something that... It was the largest deal. Yeah. Million plus. Yeah. And also it was hundreds of thousands of new users. So it was a very large one for our organization, for, for the sales organ. You're the director of sales for North America. And the rep on it was out for Christmas. Yep. And you went. I went there. Yep. I imagine whoever that rep is would work for you anywhere <laughs> ever again. That's unbelievable. Yeah, thank you. We closed the deal. We closed the deal. And to my knowledge, they are a happy customer of Dropbox still. So happy to see that. What was their face like when they saw Javi in the lobby? They were surprised. <laughs> no shit. They were surprised. But the contract needed wet signature. That's what made me very worried. And... As opposed to a DocuSign. Yeah, they wouldn't accept it for I, higher education. I.e., they needed to print it out themselves. They had to sign first, and I had to sign second. Right. And so you're thinking there's only two to three more business days left in the year. And this thing cannot get couriered to Spain. If I'm in Spain, I'm not going to make it on time. This is not going to be fully executed. And there is already enough friction in this deal that I'm nervous about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to reduce some variables out of this thing. And so they signed it and then you signed it? Yeah, I signed it. They're in the office. I took a picture, sent it to all our exec team and everyone was very happy. Oh, you must have gotten absolutely trashed that night. That must have been so fun. Oh my! I would have that thing photocopied and framed. It was a fun net. That's a great story. One of the things that as I was reflecting on the way over here that I wanted to ask you about was like, you went through and up the organization pretty quickly at a pretty young age. Why? The consistent theme, and this is just a hunch that I have in what folks that have worked with you have told me and just what I can glean from your resume is that you seem to put the company first a lot, whether that's where you live, moving to Ireland, never been there, whether that's being far from your family, whether that's showing up to the office of some company and not going back home. Do you think that's a big reason? Do you think people can just tell? I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't think so. I would think so. And, and this is where, this probably comes from my family. And this is what I've seen growing up. When you are, and this is like credit to my dad and, and my brothers in the same line of work, they are anti-terrorist officers. They put their lives for a country. 
there's nothing bigger than that, in my opinion. And I think I've learned to put a bigger purpose before my own at times, with a lot of difference, obviously. There is no comparison between putting your life at risk or sitting in an office waiting for someone to sign a paper. But it's a value that I've learned since a young age, and it, it's definitely have helped me. Dropbox was probably the preeminent product-led growth company. Incredible ride to go from where you were to find that company on a Facebook ad to then have the ride that you did is insane. Are there any moments that stand out to you that tested your optimism, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah, I think there's always hard times and you need to be okay with it. It's about how you move on from them. I think the challenge that I had at Dropbox is that it's a product-led growth company. So product, it's always the top priority and getting resources for sale sometimes was not the easiest, but we made a lot with it. And, and I think we demonstrated that sales was a very valuable part for the company. How much revenue was the company doing when you joined? 10? 20? Yeah, it was in the, it, it was in the hundreds, 250, 300 million. I don't, I don't remember. Dropbox was? Yeah. They had 150 people-ish and they were doing 200 million? That's insane. And when you say it was hard to get resources, this is not uncommon for what we think of as product-like companies, which is that the founders of these companies often have this preconceived notion that is almost always unequivocally debunked over time, which is that the product should sell itself. Is that fair? That's fair. Building a sales team, it's expensive. And when you are already being successful with the product itself, you consider, well, do I need to invest X amount of money to get X amount of incremental revenue? So... Yeah, that belief is true. And I will say that always it gets debunked. Sales brings a ton of value to companies and especially it helps you change your emotion and talk to customers that you wouldn't get otherwise. If there was an opportunity that you were really excited about at Dropbox and they said you have to move to what you would think of as the shittiest place in the world. <laughs> right here. Yeah, Austin, yeah, Texas. Yeah. yeah. Would you you do it? (laughs) No, I love Austin. I will have done it, yes. I mean, I was living in Ireland and I love Irish. I love the Irish people. Is that one of the places where you were like, I can't believe I'm going here? I was surprised to to see myself there, yes. (laughs) I was surprised. And if you had to stack rank 50 countries that you would want to go live, do you think Ireland would have even made the list? Probably not. Probably not. But then I met wonderful people and this is back to my optimism. It changed my life and it changed who I am now. I, I love Ireland and I have a very special connection with Ireland and the Irish people, but I will have never picked it. 97% of folks, you, I think outlasted is a tough word, but you stayed longer then. Looking back, it was what, seven years or whatever. Mm-hmm. You think that was too long? No, no. I think I left at the right time. Uh, I always learned while I was there and you need to know when to leave places and how to leave places. And I think I left in very good terms and I don't regret a day that I stayed there. What was your signal to you that it was time to leave? I'm not going to say I was bored because I was not bored. I had a lot of work, but I remember looking at our sales plan and looking at my headcount being relatively flat for the year and my target not being triple digit growth. And I was like, I miss those days. I want to go back to triple digit growth. I want to go back to scaling teams aggressively. And I knew that probably I should be going somewhere less mature where things were not figured out and go back to that growth mode. They'd kind of figured it out by that point, which takes away a little bit from the thrill of it. Mm -hmm. When we were talking 
about what was next for you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember Hopin at that point even being on your radar. Is that true? That's true. What happened? So Sam Taylor, that it's it's a friend, uh, leader, VP uh, sales at Loom, correct? KP Porco. Yep. Sam Taylor. I was talking to him about career, and uh, he's someone I respect a lot. Him and his wife, both are powerhouse. And I was like, dude, what are you looking at? I know you're in the market. So what is out there? What's getting? It's like I'm going to Loom. But there's this company that you should talk to. And Armando, Armando Mann, another former Dropboxer that then went to, to a company that got acquired by Salesforce, is there. So you should talk to him. And I was like, I don't know, Armando. Uh, we didn't really overlap. And I was like, I'll introduce you to him. So he introduced me to Armando. And from the moment I talked to him, I was like, these people are doing something very special. And who's Armando? Armando is our president at, at Hopin now and board member. And I was like, I want to work for these people. The product market fit is insane. They're helping people the moment they need they needed the most. We were at that time in the midst of COVID and I, I was truly bought into the vision and the founder, Johnny, was very inspirational and I, I loved everyone I met. And I was like, product market fit, great team. I'm going to do it. So I decided to join. When you say the product market fit was incredible, you're not kidding. I'm going to put some accolades out here and maybe they're wrong, but I don't think they are. I think it's the fastest growing company in SaaS. In March of 2020, there were eight employees. March of 2020, we are now not even in March of 2022. There is over a thousand employees. It's in over 40 countries, the company. Hopin has raised more than a billion dollars in funding over seven rounds. Let me just read you back these funding rounds. In June of 2020, Hopin raised its Series A. It was a $40 million Series A. And then in November of 2020, four months later, raised $125 million. You came in between the A and the B. And then in March of 2021, four months later, Andreessen, General Catalyst, IVP, raised another $400 million. And then in August of 2021, Altimeter did your Series D for another $450 million. So in two years, the valuation of the company was almost $8 billion. Is that right? That's correct. I think it's the fastest growing company I've ever seen in this time frame. When, so when you say extreme product market fit, I don't think you're being, I don't think you're exaggerating. It's the fastest growing European startup of all time by valuation easily. I don't think that's, that, that's a question in, in the maturity of it. It is the number four fastest growing product by G2. And it was founded by Johnny in June of 2019 when he was 27 years old. Juven, those are great metrics, but I always tell people that those are vanity metrics. For me, what mattered the most is actually solving problems. And like more than all those numbers, it's the customers. Who is actually, who are we helping and what are we solving for? Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. He was working on this thing before COVID happened, had built the product. Can you tell the story? Because I find it fascinating. And I imagine it was something, when you say he was very inspirational, when I hear him talk, the way he tells the story of the company and how personal it was for him and why he was doing it, I was listening to him and just thought, I get it. This makes a lot of sense to me. I don't think it would have resonated with me in the way that it did unless he said that personal story. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I do. I do. And, and the personal story, it, it got to me. 
I've been very close to people with uh, autoimmune diseases. And the story of Johnny was for me fascinating. Like when he finished college, he saw everyone going to events, people networking in person, and he was very sick. He was very ill. He was at home. He's an engineer by trade. He was like, I'm missing out. I'm missing out on connections. I'm missing out on opportunities just because I'm home with this illness. And he decided that he was going to try to change people, mingle with each other or like the, the way events happen. Events were not a hot industry before COVID uh, for tech. It was a, an industry that moved a lot of revenue, but the technology that was there was far from great. And he saw an opportunity and pursued it because he wanted to be closer to people while he was not able to go. Then what happened a few months later is that everyone was in the same situation. The whole world was in the same situation and no one was able to communicate with each other and to feel close. And that's how the company got started. When you say it like luck is better sometimes than good, I, I actually think that his vision was from the get-go very, very, very solid. And yes, there was events that accelerated growth, but... I believe that the future of events will have been changed at some point or another anyway. When you met him, was it on? Did you know? You just kind of had a gut feeling because you were pretty deep in the valuation of other companies. I would say they came in in the last two innings. Is yep. that fair? Yep. Yeah, I was very close to going in a different direction. And then you kind of knew in your gut. I love the team. I love the product. And I thought it would be, it would be a great opportunity. And, and I was very aligned with the vision. Yeah. And I think everyone experienced that in the last three years, or I don't even know how long this has lasted. But yeah. we always have craved those connections and getting closer to people. And I, I felt that we'll be helping a ton of companies, a ton of people. We have a consumer part as well. And yeah, I knew I wanted to jump to that opportunity. How many people were on the sales team when you joined? Seven. Seven reps. Seven reps. No, no, there was a leader, great leader still still in the company, Brona. She's phenomenal. And she was the first sales leader in the, in the team. And you were tasked with revenue, net new revenue. Go mm-hmm. grow the business. Yep. That was it. That was the, that's the use of it. And when you stepped in, was it f***ing on? Like, was it like- It was on. The, was reps, on. the reps didn't have time. My first priority was how do we optimize coverage? How much inbound was there? 100%. It was like too much. Yep. Too much to handle. When I got in, we were taking days to get back to customers. Very hot leads, very qualified leads. I want to buy <laughs> like kind of lead. And we, like, we didn't have capacity. So the task was to work on the process because like our process was the process of, of a one-year-old company. Work on the systems, work on the team and methodology and actually like do better for our customers. So I had to work on, the, on those things pretty fast. What was priority number one? Hiring? Or did you want to build the foundation of the house before you started putting artwork of bulls inside of it? So one of the things that, that we always talk about in the company is hop and speed. And I, we had to do things at the same time. We had to hire people while we were building the process and where we were rolling out new tools. The capacity of that organization to absorb change is enormous. And that's what we were looking for when we were hiring. But we had to do everything at the same time, Joven. It was fun. I didn't have a lot of time, a lot of free time. None of us did. How did you prioritize what to do in a day? How did you, on a Sunday, when you're cooking paella for your friends, how did you start to think about, what the hell do I do this week when there's so much to do? I guess my instincts would be, how do I make sure that every inbound order that's coming in is fulfilled? Mm -hmm. Is that priority one? Priority one is always customers for me. Whatever customers always goes first. 
But the reality is that you cannot focus on what's on fire at the moment, because if you only focus on firefighting today, you're not going to be able to build anything for the future because there was so many things happening. So my priority was actually building the foundation. That's what I did first while trying to manage our customer demand to the best of our abilities. But it was building the process, building the systems, hiring and changing the way we were operating. One of the startups in our portfolio, I was just having this conversation with their head of sales a week or two ago. They have so much inbound. I think you know this company. They have a very ambitious four to five X goal to step up to next year. Next year being this year. We are in February of Mm -hmm. this year and we have four reps, five reps. And the CEO can send one tweet and literally drive hundreds of leads. It's a remote enablement company. And he was very, very focused on hiring functional leaders first. He said, we've made this mistake before. We've hired individual contributors. Then we brought in leaders. And my perspective was, dude, we don't even have a capacity model done yet for what we need to hire, let alone the leaders that we need to go hire, let alone hiring functional leaders bi-coastally who then go hire other people. We're not even going to get them till June, best case. And then they got to go hire people. In the meantime, we have hundreds of orders sitting there waiting to be fulfilled. I'm leading the witness, but how do you balance making sure the infrastructure is there, in this case, leaders to make sure that the the reps are successful versus hiring the reps to then just manage the customer demand that's already right in front of you. So that question makes sense? It makes sense. And it's what do you do first? Make sure that you can fulfill those orders or get someone that can point you towards the right direction and build something that you are going to be able to scale down the line. I don't think there is right or wrong answer. I think bringing a leader first is going to avoid a lot of rework. You're not going to have to redo things. You're going to have a direction and hopefully a reference. The problem of not having a leader is that everyone will do differently and you don't have consistency. The customer experience will be not consistent or very different depending on who is doing what. I will, I will agree with that, with that CEO. Get your leaders, get people that can scale and look 10 steps ahead. So let's play that a step forward. Mm-hmm. You want to go from five to 25 million of ARR this year. Yep. You have four reps. Yep. No leader. You haven't even wrote your JD yet for what a leader should look like. How the hell are you going to get to that number if priority number one is hiring the leaders? And I'm not saying one CRO. I'm saying a leader in the East, a leader in the West, a leader in London. Then we build. Yeah, I think you need one. You need one person that can take that role, even if it's interim. And that person can be internal or can be external, but you need someone that's taking decisions. Otherwise, if you don't have anyone to make the calls, you're going to end up dragging on decisions. And I will start with one person and build from there. But you need sales capacity. You need to get your reps in, in place as well. There is no way that you could have known this was what it was going to be. Like, there is no way that you knew that this was the ride you were going to be on. At what point... When you stepped in, was it pretty obvious to you what you just walked into? I think it was before coming in. Part of my due diligence process was to talk to existing customers. And it was not through the company. It was like, who's on their website? Who do I know in this company? So I called them and was like, how are you using this product? What are you solving for? 
what has been your experience with the sales team? Have you had any experience with the sales team or are you swiping a credit card? I tried to understand very well what I was getting myself into and when I understood the level of demands that the company was having and the reactions of customers. Like one of the things I love at Dropbox was that people say, I love Dropbox. People love the product because it was simple, it just worked and it was solving problems. I got a very similar experience with Hopin. People say, I love Hopin. It's a very different way of doing things. And then I also understood the viral component that it had. And that for me was very important. Every time you attend an event as an attendee, you can become an organizer. You're exposed to a new product. So I, I like that. And, and I thought that the company had a ton of potential if we executed right. I assume most of our audience knows what Hopin is, but maybe for those that don't, can you give the like 30 second, what does Hopin actually do? We're a share experience platform and that our purpose is bringing people together and closer to each other. Hopin, it's all about feeling closer. It's about bringing people closer together and enabling people that don't have the opportunity to be in person or to build relationships that, that are important for them. And obviously, two years now, we haven't done anything in person. We have done very little in person. We're here in person now. That's true. That's true. Maybe we're on the other side of this thing. Well, I'm, I'm also in Texas. That's, uh, true. that's true. Rules matter less here. That's, that's true. You're also in Texas. You're not, well, you're not in London where Johnny is. Correct. And you're not in Spain where your family is. Mm-hmm. They had more strict lockdowns, that's for sure. And you're not in Ireland. I'm not in Ireland. No, you're not. When I'm in, medita- or when I'm in uh, yoga, it's so hard that for an hour, all I'm doing is focusing on the moment because I have no choice. There is nothing else that I can do while I'm in yoga because I'm struggling just to keep up with what's happening in the process. I kind of imagine in some really weird way, is that how it feels like? It's just like, you don't have a choice but to do anything but focus on what's right in front of you when this thing is going bananas. I get very fixated with things. And you've mentioned it before, whether it's like a goal or a job or a relationship. I, I, I love to put everything into them. So I don't think it's necessarily because the company was doing great. I got obsessed with things because I want to be my best all the time. And I want to make sure that the people that work with me are getting the most they can out of me and I'm pushing them to be better. So I don't think it has to do with the, with the timing or with the experience. If we were on a down cycle, I will have been equally invested. You're 35, 36, pretty young for a guest on the show. This is the kind of ride that you dream of this. This is like you're in the major leagues. This is like the craziest of crazy rides. Like as a VP of sales, that's all I would dream about is like this. Is that surreal? Or is it just like, yeah, it happened. Fuck, here I am. Next thing. I don't reflect that much on on where I am. I, I always think on where I want to be. And I focus on areas of improvement and doing certain things better. It's been fantastic. My team is now like over 200 people from those seven that we had when, when I joined and things are working. But it feels great to progress and to, and to see people growing. And, and I'm very happy where I am, but I don't get complacent with myself. I'm actually pretty hard with myself. Tell me more about that. What do you mean you're pretty hard on yourself? You know, when people do self-evaluations or when you're looking at where you are, people sometimes start with the things that they're doing great, even if for themselves or for their org. I'm known for starting with our areas of improvement. I try to celebrate people and try to celebrate accomplishments as much as I can. And I think I give a lot of credit where credit is due. I'm just trying to get better every single day. That's what comes first. Thinking on what can we do differently 
if I had to do this deal again, or if we had to roll out Salesforce again, where did we mess up? What do I have to look for in the next time I do this, or like we do this, or we throw we go through a change? So those are the things I focus on mostly. I'm pretty hard on myself. You are. Like, yeah, you are hard on yourself. I'm pretty hard on myself. I think it's like an overachiever syndrome thing. A lot of my guests are hard on themselves. I think it is a double-edged sword. It's kind of what makes you be able to achieve the things that you want to. Sometimes it's just kind of annoying. Isn't it just like, God, can't I just give myself a break every once in a while? Do you ever feel that way? Or you, you think it's great. You think it is a perfect competitive edge for you. I think there is a balance like in everything. And I've focused more on stopping and looking around and celebrating and spending more time on things that matter for for the organization. But I think it's a double-edged sword. And there's definitely a competitive advantage on putting more work and trying to improve all the time. But it's probably harder to be fully satisfied and to finish a quarter and say, this has been a great quarter. I always say, this has been a great quarter, but. And that but is what I start focusing on for the next quarter. Did it feel how you thought it would feel going through this? No, it's hard. Very often people think, yeah, you're doing great. Your company has done all these amazing things. So you have an easy job. Or you have all the inbound leads that you could need. I mean, that's nice. But it's not sufficient. It's a competitive market. It's a crowded space. And we're growing so much while we're building this thing. Everything breaks all the time. And what works today doesn't work two months from now. We know that we are building bridges all the time and we're going to have to replace those bridges. But yeah, no, it, it feels how I wanted it to feel. It feels real and it feels like a work in progress. Any things that broke that you feel like if you were doing this again, you could have avoided? The reason I ask that question is because everyone thinks they can prepare for these situations, but there's never been a hop in that grows like this in this time, in this market, in this environment. It's very unique. All these companies are. Any lesson, anything that you think about, any order of prioritization, higher hiring criteria, maybe speed versus quality and how you balance that, that if you were to do this all over again, you would really focus on? I think we've done a good job managing most of the priorities, but I will focus on always, always on talent. And when you have the pressure of doubling your sales team or any team in a short period of time, people tend to drop the bar. And this is something that I deliberately focus on not doing. I was low hired at times, even though the business was asking us to hire faster, because I wanted to maintain the caliber of people that we were getting in or increase it. So that's a common mistake uh, that can happen when you're in hyper growth. And for me, talent always comes number one. And that's something I wouldn't change. How do you make sure the bar doesn't lower? Focusing on attributes. Like it's easy to look at a CV and say, okay, uh, this person didn't go to this school or whatever. I, I like building. And I think you had a lot of guests that have talked about this in, in your podcast, diverse teams. So in order to reduce the bias, it's focused on attributes. And, and for sales, um, we focus on curiosity, self-awareness, and tenacity. You focus on those things and you prove against them. You make sure that each interviewer has an area of focus and that everyone knows what they're hiring for, making a very crisp uh, JD and understanding what are the roles and responsibilities of the interviewers. It's important having debriefs and spending time on those things. Sometimes you're like, I have to go to a debrief now and people don't prioritize it. That's the single most important thing that we have to do bring the best people that we can on the team. So I, I always put it first and I push the teams to do the same. I remember when we were at dinner, I was like, Javi, how the hell 
did you hire so many people? And you were like, technically speaking, I didn't hire that many of these people. We had an incredible recruiting team, truly world-class. You think you focus on that as a business partner next time around all over again? A hundred percent. Having a recruiting partner or recruiting team that understands the business, that understands your priorities, that is that. It's a partner. And, you know, like recruiters have also their targets and, and they have to hire but making sure that we are all aligned and that we spend time on setting the foundation, it's, it's very, very important. But our, our recruiting team is fantastic. And everyone was interviewing. I was doing interviews. My managers, my directors were doing interviews. The reps were doing interviews. Everyone was interviewing. One of the things that we have seen, we are February-ish of 2022. And the markets have changed dramatically, like crazy. It's changing the Kleiner portfolio. It's changing pretty much every tech company that exists right now. There's been a serious multiple compression. Companies that had this insane tailwind all of a sudden don't have what it was. And what you're doing when you're building the company at the rate that you are is just trying to keep up with the demand of what the business is right now. However, if that demand, which is impossible to stay at this blistering pace, things happen. Hoppin had a layoff, hardest thing you ever done. Definitely, these things don't get easier when you do them several times. I had to go through this experience before, and I think it's common when you're growing so much. But since I started, my priority was to stand up an outbound sales team, and our demand has changed, but Mm -hmm. our intake of business has not. It was very hard to go through a process like this, but it's necessary for a long-lasting business and for financial stability. and and Just to manage burn. No. We acquired six businesses this year, Jovan. And when you acquire this many businesses and you're growing so much, communication doesn't always happen as it should between departments and you create duplicities. And I think this is a story where we had teams that we didn't need, bloated organizations in some parts, and, and we had to, to get to a more efficient uh, structure. You bought six companies this year? We acquired six companies this company. I didn't buy them personally, <laughs> but hoping they acquired six, six companies. Yeah. I mean, I guess that money's got to go somewhere. That's crazy. It's kind of the Atlassian playbook. Atlassian did the same thing. In the early days. In fact, they're still kind of doing the same thing. They are doing the same thing. Yeah. I get insecure about being the young guy. I always have. It's gotten way less now because I'm just in my career longer. I've been the young guy for long enough across enough jobs. I used to lie about my age because people would always, because I'm young, it means that I'm not good. And I say that because I don't have the experience that someone else might. You ever think about it that way? No, not necessarily. I don't think age is something that worries me so much. I was very lucky to see Dropbox changing pretty much every quarter. It was a different company from where I started that when I left mm-hmm. from a Series A to publicly traded. I saw a lot more than a lot of people would see in their careers. Yes, we, that's one experience. I don't get complacent about it, but I don't think it's about age. It's about learning and having a growth mindset. Age doesn't make me insecure. What makes you insecure? Anything? Yeah, I have insecurities like everyone. English is one of them. I'm way more comfortable speaking Spanish. Right. And when I get in front of an audience in English, I'm always like a little bit shaky. It's like, okay, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to say something wrong. And I tend to say things wrong all the time. But yeah, like everyone, I have insecurities. Insecurity of failing. Uh, I wouldn't say I have an imposter syndrome. I have known a lot of people that, that have that. I don't think I do have it. But sometimes I need to check myself. I'm, I'm young and I'm where I am and... And I, I, I want to continue growing and learning and being humble. And do you think the insecurity of failing, because I feel the same way, that is a good reminder 
or refocusing exercise for you when I ask, dude, you're going through the ride of your life. All these things are happening. And you're like, well, if I start to believe the hype of Jubin blowing smoke up your ass about what this ride is, then all of a sudden it will create some complacency in me that might lead to me not doing the best job I can on the next one or whatever that means. Yeah, now for me, we're getting started and that's what I remind myself. Yes, we've done well during these past few months, but we're only getting started and we need to continue growing. And that's what keeps me in check or I hope it keeps me in check. Okay, so you and I have something similar. When your parents don't speak English, you do not know idioms. Idioms being expressions, okay? Yeah. And I always mess them up. First of all, why do we both have this thing where... I find it very effective to use an idiom to communicate. Yep. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. And I want to use them so bad. I make them up. <laughs> I, I think I just make them up. And I, I'm sure someone told you uh, a couple of them, but yeah, I tend to, tend to use wrong things all the time. Do you have any favorite Spanish sayings or idioms that do not exist? I don't know what exists and doesn't exist in English anymore. <laughs> But my team certainly does. And they keep a notebook with things that I say that don't exist, like Javierisms <laughs> or something. When I left Dropbox, they gave me a book full of quotes that I didn't remember I said. I mean, I saw them and I was like, of course I'd say this. No way. But yeah, I'll show you when we finish this. But there are some funny ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, I could keep going for hours, but you have a paella to make. I finish all these things the same way. Are you hiring? We're always hiring. We're always hiring. We're always looking for talent. So, yes. What's the best way to get a hold of you? I think LinkedIn. Javier Ortega Estrada. There are not many with that long name, so you can always reach me there. And then what does the word grit mean to you? I think it means perseverance towards a goal, stamina, and its resilience. Pedro Javier Ortega Estrada. Thank you. A pleasure. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 